0: If you want to follow along in your Bibles, it's going to be Second Peter, one sixteen through twenty-one. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we were made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: We are going through this Following Jesus series, and week one, just kind of quick overview if you're jumping in this morning with us. We are talking about how the term Christian, which is used many different ways by many different people in our culture, and often negatively so is a fine term to represent those who believe Jesus, but we're going with the term and kind of a series around following Jesus, because that's Jesus' own idea of what does it mean to trust me? It means a life of following me. And so we started three weeks ago, I think, on like, how do you get into this life in the first place through repentance and faith in Jesus? And we moved from there to kind of this paradigm where we use the The analogy of a trellis that's helping to grow a grapevine and kind of setting a shape upon which our lives are built. That's what the idea of a paradigm. And we talked about important things like this is not a life that we do individually, but it's a life that we do in community. It is a life, a lifestyle, not just an event that we attend or something that we check off and say, okay, I did it. It's more about identity, like who you are, than simply information. So when we think of Jesus as a teacher, when we think of Jesus as a rabbi, he is not first and foremost just giving us facts and information and data to memorize. He is leading us into a way of life and saying, if you follow me, this is who you are and this is who you're becoming. Then last week we shared this important pattern, which is the part in the middle inside that large arrow of these are the four basic invitations of Jesus to anyone who would follow him And we go through these key words of association, then education, and imitation, and replication. The invitations being, Jesus first just says, come to me, follow me, be with me, then learn from me, and become like me, and now go and tell others about me and about my way. This morning, we're going to take the next step, which is to begin to look at, like, what does that life actually look like, kind of where the rubber meets the road, So when you go back to work or you go back to school or you even go off to recreation today or tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day, what does that life of following Jesus practically look like at the street level? And initially, we were just going to do one message talking about the 10 key words in that gray bubble and just say, here are 10 key practices that we find Jesus lived these and Jesus taught these over and over and over again. And we'll see that as we go through here. And I thought, you know, we're talking with the elders, you know, what are we really doing? This, this, is, this is some of the most important stuff we could possibly be talking about. How do you actually practice the life of Jesus in real life? And so instead of taking two to three minutes per 10 words today, we're going to take the next 10 weeks and really slow down and just say, practice number one this morning, scripture. What does that mean? And um, to make it practical, you know, some of you are very accustomed to expository preaching, which is like verse by verse preaching. What does every word mean? Well, we can't turn to a passage of Scripture and learn everything the Bible says about Scripture or prayer or generosity or pick any of those key words up there. So what we kind of have to do is a survey of different texts and then pull them together and simplify what could be complex, but just say, here's some very simple, practical practices that you can do with your life to live this life. I think these 10 weeks will be incredibly formative in your life, even if you're like, I know what all 10 of those words mean. And I'm doing most of them. Um, I think just us doing this together, slowing down, fleshing it out in community. Um, I'm going to be doing like some workshop kind of stuff with you of not just talking about it or preaching it to you, but kind of saying, okay, so let's practice that together. What does that look like? Let's just illustrate in real time what that looks like. So today we're starting off with scripture. And the bulk of this sermon is going to, I'm going to give you four ways, I guess, to read scripture, four ways that as you open your Bible, you're like, okay, what, what, what am I doing? Am I just, am I just reading a book like I would read any other book? How do I approach this? What are, the, what are the purposes or what's the intentionality behind which I'm approaching this book? And before I get into that, I just want to remind you what it is that we are coming to when you come to this particular book. So Maddie read these verses for us this morning from first, or 2 Peter 1. And this is absolutely incredible because what we hear from Peter is he's saying, friends, this is not just a collection of stories, like narratives and proverbs and good advice and principles to live by and history and poems and prophecies and all those things. It contains those kinds of literature, but he's saying this is the very word of God. He says none of this, not a word of this came from someone's own ideas, interpretations, imaginations of just like, well, I want to write a story and get people to follow my religion. The the self-assertion of scripture is that this is The word of God. Now, what I say is incredible about 2 Peter 1 is what Peter references back to, if you look at your text, is he's talking about this moment in his life when he was already a disciple or a follower of Jesus, and three of them, three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, went up with Jesus to this mountain. And they had the incredible privilege of seeing Jesus transfigured. That's the word that I think Mark's gospel uses. And the idea of transfigured is for a brief moment of time, they caught a glimpse of the full deity and glory and holiness and brilliance of Jesus, the, the pre-incarnate Jesus. The, the before Jesus came in the flesh, he has internally been the second person of God, God the Son, and for a moment, they catch a glimpse of that. And they're like, it's so radiant and beautiful and impossible to look at. And Moses joins us on the mountain from the Old Testament and Elijah joins us on the mountain. And then they start coming up with really bad ideas because they don't know what to do at this moment. You know? And they're like, let's build three tents and like one for each of you. like Not recognizing that Jesus, the son of God, has superseded like this old law and this old covenant. But listen to what he says here. He's saying... I was there on the mountain that day. I saw this with my own eyes. He says, I heard this with my own ears when the voice spoke from heaven and the father said, this is my son, listen to him, or this is my son in whom I am well-pleased, one of the gospel says. And he's like, I was there, I saw that, I heard that. And yet family, he says, we have a type of revelation that is far more reliable than my eyewitness testimony. We have the written word of God. He's like, so between trusting my word of what I know I saw and others with me saw and trusting this book, he says, this is far more reliable. This is the true word of God that we can build our lives on and trust that it's going to lead us in the direction that God wants us to go, okay? Um, so the word of God, this is what we're coming to, and I want you to just pause for a moment and just imagine that you're the kind of person that you're like, I am, I'm really into God, like, I love Jesus, I love God, and yet here you have a book written by God about God and his will for your life and his, his will for the ages and the nations and eternity. And this book is not essentially central to your life, that you pick it up and you read it and you study it and you want to know what this says and what it means. That'd be like... That'd be like saying I'm really into the summer concert series at Mile High Stadium and Taylor Swift or Ed Sheeran writes you a letter and you don't even bother to read it. But you're like, but I'm really into concerts at the stadium or like our kids that are, you know, they they wanna be the next NHL players. And if Cale McCarr or Nathan McKinnon wrote them a letter and you're like, hey, are you interested in this? No, I'm just interested in being a professional hockey player. I'm not interested in reading what they have to say. And yet, how many Christians say, like, I'm really into Jesus and you're not really into the book where Jesus reveals his authority and his power and his love and his justice and his grace and his plan for everything. So I'm gonna give you this big idea and then we're gonna look at these four ways of approaching scripture. So big idea is to know God and the will of God, you must be a student of the word of God. So if I wanna know God... And I want to know the way of God or the will of God. I have to be, you have to be students of the word of God. So let's go off and running. Number one, how do we read the Bible? First of all, read for knowledge. Read for knowledge. Um, Do you know the Bible itself, and especially the wisdom literature, commends over and over you and I to go and seek knowledge and understanding and wisdom, it commends that. I mean, as even as Solomon, the wisest man in the world, is like telling his son, but this is real son and metaphorically all his sons, like, what what would you do with your life? He's like, get wisdom. Don't be simple. Don't be a fool. The categories that the proverbs use for someone who doesn't know. He's like, don't be those things. Don't be ignorant. But increase in knowledge. And I know this is really basic, but if you were an actual disciple of Jesus in the days of Jesus and you're walking around with him, how would you know, how would you come to know Jesus? And how would you come to know the word of Jesus and the way of Jesus? You would, you would listen to his teaching. You know, you would spend time together and you would hear him say, this is sound doctrine. The New Testament uses that phrase. Sound doctrine meaning like healthy teaching that causes us to flourish in life if we follow it. And Jesus teaches this sort of thing. Do you remember recently some of you are here for this we we recently did a series called questioning Christianity where we held up the big questions of life that every single person has to answer and we said how does the Bible answer those questions versus how do some of the more popular worldviews of our culture today how do they answer those same questions and so if, if you want to know answers to these questions and you realize we all get our beliefs from somewhere or someone you know, and people will say now, no, like, I'm just my own independent thinker. But then you start saying things, and I'm like, yes, yeah, someone taught you that. Like, you're just saying things that so many people in culture say. You, you realize that, right? Well, we all get our beliefs from somewhere or someone. So if God isn't your teacher, if he's not the one that you're going to for basic knowledge, just I, I want to know God's perspective on this. Things like, like, where did we come from, and what is the purpose of our life, and uh, how do we determine right and wrong, if not just arbitrarily, or what I feel or sense is right and wrong? Where are we, where are we ultimately headed, and how do we know that we're headed there? Um, some questions like, how do people change? Like, if I see something in my life that I don't like or that isn't healthy, how would I go about that process of change? And philosophers and psychologists and different schools of thought say all kinds of different things from a knowledge base about how people change. You have very basic questions of just like, what is God like? And how can I know him? What is human nature like? What is, what is the nature of sin or temptation? What is the nature of salvation what is the nature of our future? What should I be prioritizing with my life? How can I know the will of God? And my point is like there are question after question after question that you encounter and you are, you are probably subconsciously seeking answers to more things than you realize at any given time. And the invitation of Jesus is come to my word and seek my knowledge. And if disciple, the word literally means a student, a follower, a learner, then it makes sense that one of the main reasons we read or study the Bible is to gain knowledge or understanding from God. So I said I wanna workshop this a little bit with you. So if you will, turn with me to John 15. And we're gonna look at just a few verses together. And what I'm doing is just taking time in this one session a week where we're all together and kind of showing you, how would I do this? How would I take a text of scripture, maybe on my own, maybe in my gospel community, maybe in a smaller discipleship group, how would i take any text of scripture and approach it and seek knowledge from it so read with me or uh, follow along as i read aloud john 15 beginning in verse 1 this are the, these are the words of jesus and he says i am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. But if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And again, this is the word of the Lord. So as I read a text, um, and I chose this one intentionally because John 15 has a tremendous impact on our discipleship model. This idea... And I'll I'll just say this and then come back to the workshop portion of this. Can you put the chart back up there? The idea is as we are living this Christian life, as we are following Jesus, there are some kind of like religious groups, maybe even some denominations, certainly individual churches and spiritual leaders who would say the Christian life is all about that gray bubble. And if you do those things kind of in a vacuum, like you can put that fruit on your own life and then you please God and God is happy with you and God accepts you and that's what it means to be a Christian. Well, that's, that's not what it means to be a Christian. Like we still need to enter into this relationship and abide in Christ and he in us. And you notice how it says like, he's like, if you're connected to me, your life is going to be producing these practices. Those are, that's, that's the fruit. So your desire to seek God in prayer and your desire to seek God in his word, it's like if you're connected to me organically, vitally, drawing sustenance and life from me, of course you're going to be praying and coming back to my word time and time again. Not you do these things and if you get good enough at them, then you can be in my family or something like that. Okay, so just John 15, these seven verses that I read with you. So, like I say, let's workshop this. So I would come to this and ask questions like this. What what are those seven verses teaching me about the nature of God? If God wants to teach me about himself, and I'm assuming that he does because he wrote a book revealing himself, what, what is that teaching me about the nature of God? What is that teaching me about the nature of humanity? What is that teaching me about the nature of sin? Because it's in there. What does this teach me about the nature of salvation? What does Jesus say is the telltale mark of a true disciple of His? Like this is all in there. Okay. Um, wh- th- then we start asking, like, if I want knowledge, it's like, wh- what does it really mean that Jesus is the vine and we are the branches? What does it mean that the Father is like a vine dresser in His relationship with me? What 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 kind of responsibilities would a vine dresser have? that I can look for the the Father to be doing these kinds of things in my life and receive that as a gift of a loving Father. In what ways are we in Jesus? And notice this, in what ways is Jesus in us? Because he says both. He says, you abide in me and I in you. And I'm asking questions of this. What does that mean? What are some practices that cause a vine to bear more fruit, and how is God doing that for me and for you so that our lives are bearing abundant fruit, good fruit? Let the one who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me. What a God I know. And the more I know and the more I understand, the more beautiful, the more desirable, the more all-satisfying God is becoming in my life. Okay, so read, number one, just simply to know Scripture, know what God is saying. Number two, read for communion. And this point may be obvious to some of you. I would say it doesn't even occur to a bunch of us to read the Bible this way. I I almost let off this morning with a question of like, when you read the Bible, why? Why? In other words, like what motivates you to go back to the book and to open it up and to start reading, let alone studying? And some of you would say, well, I read for encouragement. Like I'm down, I get discouraged and I go back to the word for encouragement. That's great. Or you'd say, I read for inspiration or maybe you're like, I I do just read to know more because I want to get this book in me and I want to know this book. And those are all great, but we tend to read for certain reasons. But how many of you would say, like, I come to the word on a regular basis in a sense, simply to be present with God, and I chose this word communion on purpose. Obviously, this is communion. Okay, we call this the Lord's Supper or communion. Some sure churches call it the Eucharist. But the idea of communion is there is an intimate sharing in this bread and wine that represents the body and the blood of Christ. An intimate sharing and connection with those things. In um, Oxford Dictionary, just says communion is this. It's the sharing or exchanging of intimate thoughts and feelings, especially when the exchange is on a mental or spiritual level. And I could illustrate this with dating. If you haven't dated, you at least have had like a really good friend in your life. But I'm using dating as an illustration because most of you have experienced this at least once. There, there are stages of dating where, you know, kind of like I just met this girl and th- there's a lot of information gathering. You're just kind of telling your backstory, your interests, What do you do? There's just basic questions where you're gathering information. That's kind of like the read for knowledge piece. But you know, as you progress in a relationship, there comes a point where you're talking about deeper and more intimately personal things. And then in marriage, as this husband and wife come together, there's physical intimacy, there's emotional intimacy, there's relational intimacy. And sometimes you can be physically together, and there may not even be a conversation happening, but it's like, it is enough for me that I'm present with you. And those of you who experience this know what I'm talking about. It's just like, we're together. And it's like, well, in that intimacy, what new information did you gain? And you're like, what? Like, there was no new information. We were just present with one another, like fully given to one another, and Jesus himself invites us to come to him and to his word, not immediately just like, what's the information? If there's not a new data point, and some of you need to hear this because some of you have stopped reading the Bible because you're like, I read the Bible since I was a kid. Like, And I've, I've heard this a lot as a pastor and as a youth pastor before or a college pastor. It's just like, it's boring to me because everything I read, I've read before. And I'm like, so you stop talking to your friends? You stop talking to your family? Well, no, of course not. I was like, what well, are they telling you new stuff? Well, no, it's just... Like, we're together. Right. So even if you had fully exhausted the knowledge base of Scripture, which I assure you, you have not, even if you had, there is this reading for communion. And what I'm trying to show you is that choosing to be present with someone through your words and through their words to you is not some esoteric secret ritual or something, because it's what we ordinarily do in every other relationship in our lives. It could even just be a close friend. And you're like, as we get closer and closer, uh, just as guy friends or girlfriends or this mixed group of friends, as, as our gospel community group meets for longer and longer, there's a deeper level of trust of like, I can disclose more of myself to you and you can disclose more of yourself to me. And it's maybe not like, oh, I'm hearing a brand new story that I've never heard before, but it's like, but we are present with each other in each other's lives, in each other's stories. And there's this sharing or exchanging of intimacy. So let's workshop it. We'll go back to John 15, hopefully you're still there, and one of the reasons this is really easy is because you see in the text explicitly that Jesus is saying, I'm the vine, you're the branches, we need to abide in one another, and so I'm coming back to a text like this, and instead of just like seeking information, I'm like, okay, Jesus, how am I living in you, through you, abiding in you? How am I doing that? And I'm slowing down where it's maybe not the discovery of a new data point, but it's more like, man, what a beautiful invitation to be present with Jesus through his spirit as his father cares for me. How am I inviting you to live in me and fill me? How am I experiencing you, father, as the caretaker of my spiritual life? You see what I'm doing? I'm slowing down and I'm really like pushing into in this case, like a metaphor, an extended illustration of the kind of intimacy that we already have as followers of Jesus with God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And I'm saying, how am I consciously dependent upon you to be working this stuff in my life rather than me just going off and doing it as a work product and bringing it back to you and being like, okay, Father, are you proud of me? Because that's not the kind of relationship we have. So I'm reading for knowledge. I'm reading communion. Thirdly, I'm reading for guidance. You're reading for guidance. And I've said this throughout this series, but you are always, all of you, being discipled by someone. Meaning you are following the teaching of someone. Someone or something is allowed to guide you, to instruct you, to say, you should believe these things. You should say these kinds of things. You should not say these other kinds of things. You should not associate with those people over here that our group has canceled If you're not following Jesus, you're following someone that's providing this kind of guidance. Do you know, um, the very first time God speaks to humankind in Genesis chapter one, the, the first chapter of the Bible, he's giving guidance. It's often called the cultural mandate. But the very first thing that God says to his people is my word is life for you because it's gonna guide you into a way of glorifying me, but it's going to guide you into a way of human flourishing. And if you follow my will, I simultaneously will receive glory and joy from your life, and you simultaneously will receive uh, joy and flourishing and prosperity. Many of you memorize this verse as a child, perhaps. Psalm 119, 105, "...thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path." Just the idea of like, how do I know in a dark world, in a dark culture with all these different voices, how do I know that next step? And he's like, your word is that kind of guide to me. And I'm just, I'm taking the next step. And then the rabbi goes before me and I take the next step and I follow him and I follow his word. God's word is filled with guidance and you can call them rules. You can call it law. You can call it principles but would that we would get to the posture of like a King David after he sinned grievously and found forgiveness with the Lord where he's like, God, your, your law is my delight because when I went my own way and did my own thing and I just knew it was gonna be awesome and satisfying, I ruined people's lives and it was painful and I lost my child and I killed someone. But I find life within the the confines of your word. By the way, it's incredible that he calls it a law of liberty because true liberty is not found in the absence of boundaries. It's found in the right boundaries. You know, and I use this illustration like you drive in the mountains everywhere out here. And that, that guardrail, it's like you, you can't go down there. <laughs> okay? You can't go over that ledge. That actually liberates you to just do the drive without paralyzing anxiety. Or fear of, like, what if I go over? Well, the boundaries are there for your protection. The boundaries are there to guide you. Um, If you're joining us for the first time this morning, I want to be clear the rules aren't the way we're saved. Rather, they are the way we live because we've been saved. And we've looked at that in, like, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus calls his disciples to himself. They're already his followers by grace through faith. And then he gives them, now here's how you live in my kingdom, now here's how you walk my way. I'll give you another illustration of this. In Joshua 1.8, we read this, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. And I want you to think about when Joshua 1.8 is written, Joshua's after Exodus. So God has already liberated his people. He's already saved them and redeemed them. He's already given them his word, met with them at Sinai. He's already led them through a wilderness, provided daily meals for them, and then given them this promised land. And as they enter the promised land, he's like, let me remind you, as I do this work of redemption in your life, if you... If you are careful to let my word guide you, what do you find? Prosperity and success. You find shalom in my way. So coming back to John 15, now I'm reading for guidance. Okay, we've read for knowledge. Okay, it's like now now we've answered these questions. I know what the text means. We've read for communion. And I'm not saying that you do this in this particular order. Okay, it's kind of a, It's kind of all happening simultaneously. Um, But now I'm coming back to it, and I'm I'm particularly looking for, like, is there any instruction in here? Is there anything you're telling me that's supposed to guide my way? And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's there over and over again. Just this invitation or this command, depending on how you view it, abide in me abide in me. So if, so if I want guidance for my life, it's really this simple. I'm abiding in Christ. And then, I'm, then I'm digging into on my own and with a couple close friends, maybe with my community group, okay, what exactly does that mean to abide in him? If that's the way of guidance, if that's what he's inviting me to do, telling me to do, what does that look like? And then we come to the last verse that I read. and It's like, okay, assuming that I'm abiding in him and giving him free reign in my life to abide in me, uh, he's, what, what's the next command or invitation? Ask whatever you wish. So am I asking whatever I wish on the basis of the fact that I'm fully present with him and allowing him to be fully in me? So he's saying, if you're doing that in the spirit of that, now ask whatever you wish. And he's guiding me to pray bold prayers on the basis of our amazing intimate relationship that we have with one another, where his power and his grace is at work in your life. Then bear much fruit is, again, another command or an invitation. Well, how? By abiding in him. So I'm starting to see this guidance in my life of like, okay, again, the guidance is not like do the behaviors and then this will happen. It is abide in me. And consciously be aware of the invitation to these specific behaviors and get help where it's like, do you see that fruit in my life? Yes, I do. No, I don't. Or yes, and it's growing or whatever. But this is what it is to read for guidance. Finally, read for transformation. So read for knowledge, read for communion, read for guidance, read for transformation. And I'm thinking of this, this kind of, it's, it's humorous, but it's a tragic short story that the Apostle James tells where he, he tells a story of like, there's this guy and he goes and looks at himself in a mirror and he sees something that he needs to fix. And then he goes away without fixing that thing and he forgets. That he needed to fix that thing. He's like, that's like the person who looks into the word and just goes away and completely forgets. Like, oh yeah, that was there to show me something wrong to be transformative in my life. That was showing me something to change me. And so the invitation here is is we don't just read the word to be like, okay, I learned something today, though that's good. And we don't just read the word to be like, I had such a sweet time with Jesus today, though that's good. we should not be leaving scripture the way we came to it we should be letting it shape us Um, i've heard it said we search the scriptures but simultaneously we let the scriptures search us and we let it do a work of kind of shining a light in the dark cavities in the spaces where we've kind of done a little carve out and we're inviting jesus i'm coming to your word so that it will change me Key text here is 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 17. This is the Apostle Paul writing to a younger mentor. So we're continuing in the rabbinic model that we saw last week, where Jesus was the rabbi, he taught his disciples or apostles, and then they're now teaching other people. And the words that they're using are the words of Jesus, they're the methods of Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul now has this younger man, Timothy, and he's like, here, let me, let me train you. So as I'm passing from the scene and God is running with you in, his, in, in, in your life, here's the kind of thing you need to know. He says, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the Bible, the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Then he says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God or the person of God may be complete, perfect, fully equipped for every good work. Let's break that down for a minute. So he starts with all scripture is God breathed. So again, as we pick up this book, there should be like a bit of awe. I just think of, like, how I treat, like, the the, the physical book even of, like, I have so many of these and they get worn out. Sometimes they just get chucked in the back of the car and shuffled. It's like, but there should be an awe of, like, this is God-breathed. We use the word inspiration. If you've heard, like, scriptures inspired, that's this word. This isn't just a collection of myths and fables and legends and rules and advice. It's the word of God. But then he goes on, and I love this. He's like, and and Timothy, what's it good for? Church, what's the Bible good for? And he lists these four things, teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. To what end? That you may be fully equipped. This is what we refer to as the sufficiency of Scripture. Like, I don't need the Scripture plus really anything to know God's will for my life. Now, is it helpful to have other resources? Absolutely. I love other resources, but he's saying there's a sufficiency in Scripture to find the will of God, to know it, to know Him, and to walk in the path that He wants you to. Now, let me just kind of do a quick study on these four words with you, teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, because this model is so important when I say read the Bible for transformation, because again, Paul's saying all Scripture is not only breathed by God, but all Scripture is profitable to do these four things in your life. Number one, teaching. The word Didaskalia doctrine. It's like teaching what's right. So it's that 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 early model of it's the knowledge. Like what do I need to know that this is God's definition of right and wrong, of what's moral and ethical and healthy and causes human flourishing and glorifies him and what doesn't. Okay, that's teaching. But then the reproof word is like rebuke or refute something. And it, uh, it was actually a, a courtroom word that would mean to prove the error in something. So you know how they do that in court. You have two sides. Attorneys are arguing against each other and they actually come with evidence of like, you actually did the crime. So here's, here's not just a, it's not just a rebuke of like, you're wrong, but it's actually the, the proof of your wrongdoing. But then the correction word there is a word that means to restore or to reform. So I see something wrong and now I'm starting to put it back straight. And then the training word is, um, it's paideia, it's related to the word for child, and it's the idea of you you don't just tell a child something, you get in there with the child and you help them have training wheels and practices that are like, this is going to help you not just know the right thing, which is the doctrine word, but actually start working it out and have a platform in your life for like workshopping this, fleshing it out, forming proper habits. So several years ago, right around this time, is the beginning of college football season, and it's a Saturday evening, and I'm missing, like, one of my team's football games against a rival who has talked smack all week long, and I'm missing this because I am up officiating a wedding in, like, a cornfield in northeast Colorado. So I'm like, here, and I'm like, do you take her, and what's your thing, and whatever. And I'm like, I'm in, but the entire time, my cell phone is like in this pocket of my suit jacket, and it's like, I'm like, oh, man, I know who this is, and they they are talking smack something awful. And so I was like, okay, you know, then like. Okay, man and wife, you may kiss the bride. I announce, whatever, they go down the aisle. I'm waiting for everyone to clear out. And the moment, like the last people's backs are turned, I'm like, okay, what's going on? (laughs) And it's like, and it's, there was no smack talk. I had no idea the score. I don't even remember which rival it was because everything went away because it was text from my wife saying, Maddie fell skateboarding and hurt herself. And then a few moments later, it's like, it's really bad. And if you know Marty, she's like simultaneously like the most compassionate person I know, but also the kind of parent that's like you hear a loud crash in the other room and she's like waiting and there's some crying and she's like, they're boys, like they need to figure it out, you know? And if she's like, it's really bad, then it was far worse than what she was saying. And so I'm on my way to the hospital children's as fast as I can get there. And Maddie's laying there, the girl who read the scriptures this morning, and her right arm is like, about halfway down her forearm, it just kind of takes a wild turn. And I'll show you the x-ray now, so don't, don't look if you don't want to see an x-ray of that. The picture on the left-hand side was her arm, okay? And this is what we're encountering. And they're not sedating her. They're just trying to be like, we'll make you feel comfortable, honey, until we can figure out what we, what we want to do. Okay, there's teaching where if, if you go to children's ER, they're like, there's a standard for what an arm should look like. And, and there's a range, <laughs> but there's teaching, there's, there's doctrine, right? This is what's right. This is what it should look like. You know, the purpose of an x-ray is it's, it's the reproof word because an x-ray is proof your arm is messed up. Your arm is broken. Okay. Can you see that? Well, yes, we see that. We acknowledge there's pain and it's, it's clearly broken. That's not how it's supposed to look. Okay, the right side of this image, and it's a little bit harder to see, but many hours into this process, they sedated her and got a couple doctors to, like, pull her arm back straight because they're like, we have to set it straight. Okay, that's the correction word. There's a restoration, there's a reformation, and there may be pain in that pulling straight, but we've got to get it back the way the doctrine says it should look. So that's what we're doing on the right side of this picture. And I was like, they got it pretty darn close. Like that, that's excellent work. And we have multiple different angles of that shot. But then the training is, and now we're going to put a cast on it for weeks. And after that cast has been on for weeks, then you're going to get a soft cast and a sling. And that's training. We're, we're, we're letting it heal straight, but we're, we're letting you kind of take over the process of your body healing itself so that things can be right again. And family, this is what I'm saying. We need this spiritually where we, we look at the word of God and we're like, that's what an arm is supposed to look like. That's what a heart is supposed to look like. That's what my emotions are supposed to look like. And there, there's a range. Like I said, it's not like that's what your emotions look like. There's a range of healthy emotions. There's a range of healthy heart reactions. There's a range of healthy behaviors. But if we need the image on the left, how much more do we need the image that the word of God gives us of just saying, here's evidence, you're... Your mind's not right right now. Your actions are not right. Your heart's not right. Will you let me do step three, even if it hurts, and then put the cast on to get you walking in a way where you can be- begin to flourish? God invites us, come to the Bible and read it for transformation. Let the Word of God do this process to you over and over. Because guess what? Every single one of us are broken there is brokenness in all of our lives and the game is not like nope not in my life the game is and it's not a game but the process is yeah and the word is showing me more and more areas of brokenness in its kindness so it can heal me God would you do that in my life through your word so when I come back to John 15 one last time and I'm doing this process of, okay, wh- where's the transformation here? And I'll just work through this. It's like, what, what's wrong? And I'll just, I'll, I'll reflect on my own life sometimes, okay? Because John 15 is one of the texts I come back to often. What's wrong, Matt? And as I hold my life up to the word of God, I'm like, I'm not abiding. That's what's wrong. I'm, I'm restless. I'm, I'm all over the place with my thoughts, with my emotions toward God. I'm, I'm not abiding, resting in. I'm just helter-skelter, Okay. Um, What else is wrong? Well, sometimes I want a quick fix for fruit, even if it's not organic. It's not like, oh, God, would you produce this in my life through a long, steady, healthy process? I'm like, where's the scotch tape and the bucket of apples? Because I want you all to see the apples and know that I'm doing just fine. The fruit of my life sometimes doesn't look like the fruit of the Spirit. It's like there, there is something organically being produced in my life, but because I'm not abiding in Christ, it doesn't look like the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, meekness, contentment, patience, all of that. What else is wrong? Well, sometimes I'm angry about what the Father prunes away. says he's going to take these cuts so you can bear more fruit. And sometimes I'm like, I didn't want you to take that away. And I'm mad at you for taking that away. That was healthy for me. And he's like, no, it wasn't. Trust me. And I'm like, well, I don't. You know, oftentimes I don't pray in confidence like he invites me to because I have trust issues and I have to recognize I have trust issues. I've prayed for stuff before and you didn't do that. So why would I pray big audacious prayers now? So then where's the correction? Where's the restoration? I just hear the father lovingly say in Jesus over and over again, abide, rest, remain, that's not like beating you with a bully stick. It's just like you're, you're all over the place. You're, you're anxious. You're fearful. Abide. You're, you're faking the fruit right now. Abide. That's the correction. And then the, the training me to do that, sometimes Jesus is like, I'm going to take away everything else you rely on to do this in your life. So the only thing you have left is me to do that in your life and I'm going to bring people into your life sometimes who see the fruit that you don't see yet and they're going to encourage you or they're going to admonish you they're going to help you do this life together I've got a bunch more of this that I'm going to massage into your gospel community group discussions and the questions that I send out to group leaders there's so much more here I think that's enough for this morning Um, reading the word for knowledge for communion for guidance for transformation i close with this. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his or her delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers."